in today's text in the Gospel of Mark, we read a passage of Scripture which is referred to as the Transfiguration. It's a time in which Jesus took his innermost disciples, the three closest ones, Peter, James, and John. You know, Peter, um, he had this ability to kind of stick, um, stick out from the crowd. James and John were right there. While Jesus loves everyone, he did have groups of people who were affiliated more closely. Jesus, the Bible tells us, had 70 that he sent out uh, on mission. He had the group of 70. Beyond that were the masses. There was the 70, there was the 12, and even within the 12, there were the three who were um, able to be a part of some, some very unique and special Experiences And these three, Peter, James, and John, Jesus took aside and he said, come with me and we're going to go up on a high mountain. And the, the mountain is not named. Uh, the folks uh, who are scholars will uh, give you a pretty good idea of which mountain they think that is. Although those folks who, uh, you know, send you on Holy Land tours, they, they have some alternate sites that they'd like to direct you to and sell you a few trinkets, so, you know, so, uh, so there's two or three that like to claim which one the best place is, but um, the Bible doesn't name the mountain. But this incident is recorded in three of the Gospels. It's a very unique and special time in the life of Jesus and not only in his life, but in the life of these three disciples. And because it was recorded for us in the life of all of Jesus' disciples. So if you would please stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. And today I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Mark 9, beginning in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. There appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly... When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law... Well, I'm going a little, a little far there. We're going to stop right there. Let's, uh, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take um, this passage, this text of Holy Scripture, and use it in our hearts, in our minds, to encourage us and to teach us and to make us more like Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. Today's sermon is entitled, The Brilliant Sun and His Dim Disciples. Because when you look at the gospel accounts, two things stand out. First of all, how amazingly, dazzlingly radiant Jesus was. Uh, The gospel accounts go uh, out of their way. To use different expressions to show how brilliant Jesus was, how dazzling he was. Uh, Here in this uh, gospel, Mark says, hey, his clothes were so bright, there was no bleach, there was no launderer in the world that could get them any whiter. If you look at one of the other, some of the other gospels, they'll say stuff like, it was brighter than the brightest lightning. And, 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 There's all sorts of different expressions talking about Jesus and talking about his clothes. And the idea was obviously the radiance, the brilliance was coming uh, out of Jesus and and his clothes were affected as well. I mean, it's that that white, white, you know, that that white that you have sometimes when you get white clothes and only at first. They're never that white again, you know, but they're that super white and um this amazing, brilliant whiteness that's whiter than the whitest, brighter than the brightest. It's that, it's that like the sun when you've walked out of the optometrist and your eyes have been dilated. And you're wearing those oh-so-cool square little protector half sunglass thingies. And you're like, wow, I can't take it. His brightness was like that. It was a brilliant radiance coming off of, of Jesus. This amazing, bright white. And the gospel writers are all trying to emphasize this. this staring, looking at Jesus was like trying to stare at the sun, this amazing brilliance coming off of him. And everything else, obviously, was dull and dim in comparison. And you can look at this passage in a lot of ways, and, and we can go into a lot about what it tells us about Jesus. And there's so much here. Um, there's a lot that's reminiscent from the Old Testament. Um, very similar stuff. There's echoes of what happened with Moses, like Moses went up on the mount to receive uh, the law. And we remember that when he came down, he had this reflected brilliance and glory and his face shined so brightly that the people of God in the Old Testament said, Moses, put a veil over your face because we can't, you're shining so brightly that we can't even bear to look at you. And Moses had to like actually wear a veil over his face for a while until that, till that glow faded. Of course, Moses simply had a reflected brilliance, a a reflected uh, radiance. This was a radiance from within. This was Jesus' true brilliance, his true radiance, his true light coming forth, something that he had shielded 
the apostles uh, and the people of that day from because they couldn't handle it if they had seen it all the time. And, and, but there's so many other echoes here. We, we think of Moses and Elijah, and they were, Moses represented the law, the first five books of the Bible. Elijah was the prophet, the major, the greatest known prophet of the Old Testament. So here we have the law and the prophets. And they were both figures in the Old Testament who no one had seen die. We know that Moses died. Scripture tells us that he died, but no one saw him die. No one ever knew where he was buried. Elijah, of course, went off in that chariot. So these two figures had so much about them. There was so much uh, mystery and wonder and, and so much uh, about them in the Old Testament that being here, like Jesus is just kind of placed up above, not only just on their level, but above them. And you can learn so much about that from that aspect. But there's also an amazing study to be found of looking at the disciples and thinking about what we can learn about them and about us. Putting yourself in this situation. If Jesus had said, hey, Charlie, come on, we're going to make a hike, man. We can go up this mountain and uh, we're going to do some stuff. I want you to see something that's going to happen. And buddy, Nettie, come on. We're, we're going to go up for a little hike. How would you respond? What would you do if you were there when this happened? How would I respond? That was the question that I asked myself. I wasn't thinking about any of you guys. I was thinking about myself when I came up with this dim disciple, or I almost worded it dull disciple. Because I thought, I thought, I'd have been like, uh, 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 what in the world is going on here? How would I have responded? And I want us to think about these disciples for a second. And what this story tells us, not just about how they responded in this moment on a mountain, but how they responded a lot of the time as they were following Jesus around the Judean countryside for three years. And the first thing that I see is that they were often, not just in this situation, but they were often terrified of Jesus. And we don't think about that a lot, but the disciples were often terrified of Jesus. Think about it. Remember the one time that they were going, going along and uh, Jesus saw a tree, a fruit tree, and he went over. There's no fruit, fruit on you. And he cursed the tree. Now, Jesus wasn't throwing a hissy. Jesus was doing this as a symbol, and we won't go into all the meaning there, but he was doing this. It, there was a point to it. But uh, his disciples kind of, you know, vaguely took note of it. They didn't pay much attention, but the next day they traveled back by, and that tree that was bright, beautiful, blooming, and in full health was gone. And the disciples see that, and they're kind of like, ooh, we might not want to make Jesus mad. We, we might want to be kind of careful around him. Another time when they're out there on the boat by themselves and they're struggling and they see Jesus coming toward them on the water and Jesus is coming to rescue them. Instead of saying, oh, it's Jesus coming to rescue us. They start screaming and wailing, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. You know, we thought we were going to die from the storm, but now a ghost is going to get us. 
Another time they were out on the waters, and uh, while they think they're going to storm, man, I'd stay off the waters if I was them. Sounds like they were having rough times, but, you know, they just couldn't stay off the, the waters, I guess. And, and Jesus is down there taking a nap, and they wake him up, and like, Jesus, Jesus, don't you know what's happening? And Jesus is kind of wiping the sleepy out, I can imagine, and, and, and they get him up there, and he says, peace, be still. And not only does the water still, but the skies clear, the winds cease, and the disciples fear him. <laughs> they are terrified of him, and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Several years ago, there was a song that said, what if God was one of us? Well, he was, but he was not like the next words would go on to say, a slob like one of us. He was all man, and yet he was all God as well. You see, it is so hard for us to put those things together. We accept Jesus as our friend. We sing about him being our friend. And then we begin to think he's our chum or our buddy or our pal, and we forget that he is the eternal son of God, who is holy, holy, holy. He is our Lord and master. And sometimes when that veil is pulled back, when Jesus allows his glory to be seen, when he reveals a bit of himself to us, when we get to know him a little better, as much as we love him, as much as it's a wonderful experience to get to know Jesus more, and then we ask God, show yourself to me. Remember what you're asking. You are asking for a being that is infinitely greater than you to reveal himself to you. And can you really handle that? Do you even understand what you're asking? I was talking to my children today. Caleb and Courtney are down in Laurel. They're going to see their mom this weekend. They're coming back up. And I was trying to impress upon them the weather that's coming in, the system. And I thought, they grew up in South Mississippi. Do they understand winter weather? Do they understand ice storms? And, and You don't understand that when you're from South Mississippi. I'm from Biloxi. I can tell you, you don't understand that. And we often don't understand what we are asking for when we say, God, I want to know you more. Should we want to know him more? Absolutely. But to be completely honest, seeing God for who he is equals also seeing ourselves for who we are. In the reflection of his glory, and that is downright scary sometimes. Because when we see him as the master of wind and waves, we see ourselves for how small and insignificant we are in his presence. And we are reminded that we are mortal man. We are reminded that we are created beings and not infinite God. And so these folks, even though they ate meals and took their drink and they laid in the same uh, tents and they walked in the same towns. Do not forget, do not 
suppose that, that they were just chummy with Jesus all the time. We need to know and realize that there were often times when they were confused. And even as this passage directly tells us, they were terrified in the presence of Jesus. Secondly, we learn about these disciples that they talked when they should have listened. They talked when they should have listened. And here we go. Guess which one it was again. It wasn't James and it wasn't John. It was Peter. You know, Peter, uh, Peter kind of steals the scenes in a lot of, in a lot of places. And, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, not all press is good press, right? It's really not. And Peter gets a lot of press in the Gospels. But it's usually saying something that you think he'd probably be saying, let me get those words back if he could. He's saying things that maybe the other people wanted to say, but they kind of thought, maybe I shouldn't. But Peter just didn't have that filter. And he was putting it out there. And he was always getting himself in trouble. You know, sometimes I, uh, I think about Peter uh, kind of like a Tony Dinozo. I'm a big NCIS fan, and I, used, I don't watch it as much anymore. I think the last few seasons I fell off, and he's not, he's not on there anymore. But uh, NCIS, you know, there's a, a, the, the head guy, his name's Gibbs, and then one of the assistants, uh, Tony Dinozo, and he's always saying dumb stuff. And, and Gibbs is the head guy. He always comes up, and Gibbs comes right up behind Dinozo, and he just kind <clears> of <throat> gives him this little... Thing on the, and I just, I, I know Jesus wouldn't do this, I don't think, but I just kind of think maybe Jesus, they just did a little Gibbs number on Peter every once in a while because it seems like Peter was saying this kind of dumb stuff all the time. I mean, it, it, maybe the other disciples were doing that to Peter, but he was always saying stuff, just spitting stuff out without thinking. And uh, here he was again, it's like, uh, um, Peter, I mean, do you, can you imagine you're, you're all by yourself and all of a sudden the two greatest figures from the Old Testament show up? Now, the first question in my mind was, how do they know this is Moses and Elijah? Like, does one of them look like Charlton Heston, you know, or, um, you know, does, is there a, the chariot of fire? I mean, how did, do they wear a name tag? I, I don't know. Did, Jesus says, hey, what's up, Moses? How, how do they know who it is? The Bible doesn't say. Somehow they just know who they are. But they, they all know that these are the two greatest figures from the Old Testament. And then Peter says uh, in very, very smart, intelligent language, Jesus, it's good for us to be here. Um. um I think we should build you some shelters, one for each of you. How about that? You know, it's like, really, Peter? What a great plan. What a great plan. Well, he might have kind of, scholars say he might have kind of been on to something. There was a festival of booths. It was one of the, the Jewish uh, festivals. And there was a thinking, a saying that, in the end times, it was going to happen around the Festival of Booths. And this Festival of Booths, 
uh, which could be called Festival of Tabernacles, and they built these little tents or tabernacles or booths, whatever you want to call them. And, uh, and the, the theory was that Moses and Elijah were going to show up, and then God was going to show up, and everything was going to, it was going to be kind of like a big end times event. And so Peter was just like, hey, let me beat everybody else to the gun. Let me, let me ju- you know, jump out and, and spit out the answer before everyone else and show how smart I am. And, uh, and you know, he, he, he was really wanting Jesus to congratulate him for figuring it out. Hey, this must be, I mean, if Jesus led you up on top of a mountain and Elijah and Moses shown up, you might think it was the end of the world, you know. But again, like we said, Peter had this, he had this habit. How many times do we talk when we should listen? Because we don't want to. Listen, it's easier to talk. It's easier to let our mouth run, to fuss or to gossip or to moan and whine and complain than to simply stop and do what God told us to do. Be still and know that I'm God. I could see different responses people would have at seeing all this stuff happen. Some people would probably just, you couldn't hush them up. OMG, 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 this is crazy, this is crazy. And someone saying, I didn't sign up for this, I didn't sign up for this. And, and somebody else, you know, sitting there, you know, repeating some prayer and rocking back and forth. And, and who knows what else, but can't you see so many different responses to this Jesus glowing and Elijah and Moses showing up. And so many people's responses, probably ours, would have had to do with just blurting out stuff, crying, weeping, maybe even hallelujahing or high-fiving or doing something, rather than just, wow, what are you trying to show me here, God? What do I need to learn from this? What do I need to see? Because so often the disciples, when they should have been listening, they were talking instead. And the third thing, third big point, final big point I want us to see. The disciples often complicated the simple truth. You know, the last verse um, that we read, or the last one I was supposed to read. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead means. Jesus had told them, gave them orders, hey, don't talk about any of this until after I've risen from the dead. That was pretty simple. And by the way, he'd been telling them, he'd been cluing them in. This is coming. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. And I'm going to come back. The problem is that didn't fit their system. Because their system, their thinking, didn't allow for a Messiah that that happened to. Their thinking was about a Messiah who was going to throw off the Romans. Uh, a, A Messiah who was going to ride in on a great stallion and overcome militarily everybody. And even though they hadn't seen Jesus doing any of that stuff, the three years they'd been following him around, 
in the back of their minds, that, that was still coming. You know, Jesus was just still staying his hand until that right moment. And so they tried to make this simple truth about rising from the dead. Well, hmm, now what is that a metaphor for? What does he really mean by rising from the dead? The Bible tells us they were having this big, deep conversation about that. And Jesus simply meant rise from the dead. After I've died and come back, then you can talk about that. There's a lot of times that um, we don't like the simple truth that God's Word tells us. And so we kind of start, oh, boy, that's so complicated. I don't know what that really means. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, we do. But we'd rather complicate it than follow it because it doesn't fit our system or our society's system or what someone else who is going to judge us thinks. And so we overcomplicate it so that we don't have to obey it, so that we don't have to worry about it. Because like, oh, if it's so complicated, I don't understand it then it's really not something I have to pay attention to. And the disciples were here, well, we don't really know what that means, so I guess we'll pontificate on it, and then, you know, we'll figure that out later. So what's all this mean for us? Three things, very quickly. Number one, there's hope. There's hope. The disciples, in a lot of times... Uh, in Scripture, in the Gospels, man, they look absolutely clueless. I've said many times, one of the things I love about the Bible is its honesty. One of the reasons you can tell that the Bible is so honest that it's not, Christianity isn't a made-up religion, because if it was a made-up religion, they would have made the first leaders of Christianity look way smarter and way more courageous and way more consistent than they did. Nobody would have come up with this new religion and said, hey, um, our main guy, he picked 12 people to be the early leaders, and uh, boy, they were screw-ups, and they messed up a lot, but here they are. It, it, you wouldn't have made up that kind of story. You would have made up 12 guys who were just, man, they were on point all the time. But they weren't. They had so many flaws and failures and mess-ups, and they had scars, and they had hiccups, and they had a past, and they were just like you and me. Ordinary people. In fact, in the book of Acts, when all the bigwigs in the nation of Israel, the power people, called them in, to find out who it was that was making a ruckus about this guy, Jesus, that they thought they'd already gotten rid of. They examined them and they noted they were ordinary people that just happened to have been around Jesus. And they were like, these aren't elites. They didn't go to the right schools. They're not from the right families. They don't have the right connections. How in the world is it that this lot... It's changing the world. 
Let's see what caused the elites to disdain them is what gives us hope for us. Because if Jesus could take this ragtag team of 12 ordinary men and change the world through them, then he can do the same through us. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room and who's watching and listening to this, there is hope for us. Jesus can transform us just like he did those disciples. They changed the world. So if you ever think, I'm a screw up, I mess up in the same way over and over and over again. I've got a past. I've got bad tendencies. Yeah, just keep it coming. So did all the disciples. Don't count yourself out. Don't give yourself an excuse to not be used by God. Because every excuse you could come up with, the same men and women whose lives were touched by Jesus in the Gospels had all those same excuses. Just go back and look at Mary Magdalene. Just go back and look at the tax collectors. Go back and look at all of the people who Jesus transformed. They had all the excuses, but Jesus gave them hope. He took away the excuses and gave them hope. Secondly, we learn that discipleship's a process. Folks, sometimes we look at people who accept Christ and we, we think that they're going to become some instant super Christian. We get all disappointed, whether it's at ourselves or at others who become Christians. When Well, I thought they were a Christian. Friend, when you become a Christian, you do not become instantly perfect. In fact, you do not ever become perfect in this life. You are always in process. That little old song that children used to sing a long time ago about he's still working on me. Thank God for that song. We need to remind ourselves of that song. We are all works in progress. None of us are finished products. And growing to become more like Christ, it's always an ongoing thing. The Apostle Paul who, look, if there's, quote, levels, man, he's levels above us. He was greatly higher than us. And he would say, not that I have already attained. So if he could say, not that I've already attained, in other words, I'm not there yet, we're not there yet. All of us are works in progress. And in other words... Give yourself a break or let God give you a break. That is, receive his grace. Don't forgive yourself so much as let God forgive you. When you mess up, acknowledge it, confess it, receive God's grace. You repent of that sin and you walk forward in God's grace. Don't hang out in the past in your guilt and in your sorrow over the sin. You know, Satan wants you stuck in the past. God just wants you to simply come to him, confess it, repent of it, and move forward. But discipleship is a process. And God doesn't plan on you beating yourself up every day over what you've done in the past. God wants to lift you up out of that hole you've fallen into and help you keep moving forward toward him. Third and finally, the Spirit makes the difference. The Spirit makes the difference. What we see in the book of Acts... These same men, they were not perfect again at this point. In fact, we know from Scripture that Peter still got in trouble sometimes, and the Apostle Paul had to pull him aside and rebuke him one day. 
when it came to an to a issue about the Jews and, and who they were associating with. But we see a vast difference between them in the Gospels and them in Acts. And a part of it that was made such a difference was the coming of the Holy Spirit and their reliance on the power of the Spirit. Because back in the Gospels, Jesus was outside of them. In the book of Acts, the Spirit of Jesus was within them. And they relied on His Spirit, and His Spirit empowered them, and they listened to His Spirit and were guided by His Spirit. Doing the work of God in human power never works. Doing the work of God, letting it be done through you in His power is the only way it can work. We may be dim and dull disciples, but we serve a brilliant, radiant Jesus. It's not our job to shine on our own. It's our job to let Jesus' light shine through us. It's our job to not block that light. It's our job to get out of God's way, to not cause shadows, but to let his light shine. And I encourage you to do your job. Let all of us encourage one another. Let us do our jobs together, shining God's light for the very dark world. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for the light of Jesus. Thank you for the encouragement of these disciples, for all the issues and problems they had. Father, by your Spirit's power, you use them to transform this world. Lord, we, even today, we read the words that they, are, that they wrote. We, we read the stories about how they spread the gospel, and we are still encouraged and touched uh, by their ministry even today as it was done through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may your Spirit work among, in, and through us. May we throw away our excuses. God, may we quit uh, overcomplicating things that are very simple, and may we simply let listen to you, and let you work through us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.